and turn to Acts chapter 28 in your Bibles. And while you're turning there, I've got some very exciting news. We're actually going to make it to Rome today. <laughs> I know we've been talking about it for three months, and it might feel like it's taken a long time when we first heard the call for Paul to go to Rome, but we're finally getting there today. And take heart, it took Paul over two years to get to Rome, so three months is actually pretty good time on our parts. So I'm proud of us for that. Uh, all right, I'm going to start reading. This is Acts 28, starting in verse 1. After we were brought safely through, when we learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belong, were lands belonged to a chief man of the island named uh, Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods at it as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. On the second day, we came to Petali, and there we found brothers who were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we get to gather this morning, that we get to dive into your word. I ask, Father, that your word would speak to each one of us this morning, that we would hear your voice through your scriptures, and that we would live differently because of the words that you give us. Thank you, Father, for this gift. We love you. Amen. Okay, so this text takes place kind of last week. We, we were left hanging a little bit uh, with Matt's sermon where, you know, there's this massive sea wreck and they, they pull up on shore and that's where we pick up the story today. And before we dive into the actual story that happens on the island of Malta, uh, I want to go back and track how we got, uh, how we got to this place. Um, Whoops, <laughs> I was actually about to start sharing my screen, but I can't start sharing your screen while someone else is. <laughs> I've got a map up that's gonna track, um, uh, that's gonna track our entire story from uh, Crete, where they were. They were in this land called, or in this, uh, in this place called Fair Havens. So let me share with you guys here. Um, okay, so this is uh, the journey that they took from Jerusalem, from Caesarea, you can see it on the bottom right, and how they traveled up and they went to Myrna and Sindus. And then where we were last week is that they were in this place called Fair Havens, right here on the southern end of Crete. 
And what happened, this is all in Acts 27, uh, they said, hey, this isn't a great harbor for wintering because you have to last the entire winter, which would probably be about six months uh, of, of winter storms. They said, let's go ahead and try to move over to Phoenix. And you can see Phoenix just up the coast there on the left uh, and try and land in Phoenix because it's a much better harbor for wintering. And Paul says, hey, I really don't think this is a good, a good idea. There's going to be loss of life. It's going to be terrible. And they say, no, 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 we're going to do it anyways. Because, you know, Paul's a prisoner, right? They're literally transporting a prisoner. Who's going to listen to the prisoner? And so they set sail. But the problem is there's a massive northeasterly wind that blows them away from the coast. You think, hey, we'll just hug the coastline and we'll make it up to Phoenix, no problem. But this wind comes up and they sweep south of the island of Cauda. And down here on the bottom left, uh, they're worried uh, on the kind of north bank of Africa is a massive sandbar and it's known as a ship's graveyard. It's awful. So they're, they're trying to veer north while this wind is blowing. And after three days, uh, what happens is uh, Paul says this. This is Acts uh, 27 and 23. Since they've been without food. Oh, hold on. Wrong verse. 23. For this very night, this is Paul addressing the crew after three days of being blown off course and winds and they're in open waters now. He says, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And the very next verse, when the 14th night had come, when they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So this is three nights in, Paul gets this vision of an angel saying, hey, your life's going to be spared, even though this is a nasty mess. It's three days of crazy storm. And by the way, they're setting out for like a day's journey. I don't know how long it takes to sail that far. Not that long. They did not pack for a two-week across the Mediterranean journey. So they're running out of food. Things are not going well. And then an angel comes to Paul and says, hey, you have to preach in Rome, which this is now the third time that uh, an angel or Jesus or someone, the spirit has come to Paul and said, you've got to take the gospel to Rome. The first time, which was three months ago for us, over two years ago for Paul, it was Acts 19, 21. I'm going to read it really quickly. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And then Acts 23, 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified about me, the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Remember, we did that sermon on that passage, Tharseo, take heart, take courage. And so three days in, the angel comes and says it the third time, which is our text right now, to Paul, you're going to go to Rome. And so 14 nights in, they sense they're close to land. And so what they do is they take, they, they take measurements and they see on one side of the boat, it's about 120 feet deep. And then the other side of the boat, it's about 90 feet deep. So they drop four anchors into the water. And then uh, they wait for the morning. And they, it's been two weeks now of this storm. And they see a beach. They see a beach. And it, they don't know it at the time. They don't recognize it. It's not a port, but they see a beach. So they cut the anchors off and they decide, we're just going to ram the ship up on the beach to get everyone on the shore. But they come onto a sandbar that blocks the ship. And so the ship starts being destroyed on the sandbar and everyone has to bail ship. <laughs> and the Roman guards are like, we got to kill all the prisoners. Because if you remember, the, the law was 
if you had a prisoner and you lost the prisoner, what would happen is the guards would receive the punishment that was due to the prisoners. So the guards were like, let's just kill them all. We don't have to want to worry about this. But the centurion has been listening to Paul and seeing Paul's words come true. So he wants to spare Paul's life. He says, no, let's not do it. And so they send the people that can swim to shore and everyone else is on driftwood and they all make it to land safely. And that is where we pick up the story today. Shipwrecked on an island. It sounds like it would be an amazing reality TV show. Now, before we continue, uh, I was doing some research on Malta this week. And of course, <clears throat> a huge part of Malta's history now is this crash of Paul. And I was doing some research, and this is the island of Malta, modern day. This is just Google Maps. You can kind of see up on the northern part of the island where it says St. Paul's Bay. That's the traditional landing spot for the Apostle Paul. But uh, what's crazy is uh, I was looking at this, and I was doing some research, and there's if you look at the geography of St. Paul's Bay, a lot of it doesn't actually match the description in Scripture. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if anyone's done like some research on where did, where did the Apostle Paul actually land on the island of Malta? And I found this guy named Bob Cornuke. He's a Los Angeles crime scene investigator. And he visited Malta and kind of had that same impression. And he spent 10 years researching where did the Apostle Paul actually land? And he's looking for four things, all from the Bible. His, his whole hypothesis was, I study crime scenes all the time. I look at the evidence. I let the clues speak for themselves. What clues do we have in the scriptures about this, about this uh, shipwreck? And it was four things. A bay with a beach, which was really helpful because a lot of the coastline of Malta is cliffs. And so it kind of narrows it down that there's a bay, there's a beach. He was looking for a reef or a sandbar, a place where the ship would run aground. He was looking for a seabed that was between 90 and 120 feet deep. And he was looking for a place that the sailors didn't recognize. So it couldn't be, and that was another problem with this traditional landing spot is that it's known as a it's known as a as a harbor it's been a harbor for a long time so theoretically the sailors would would have recognized it and so he's he's doing all this research and he says and he contacts uh he contacts someone who spent the last 30 years studying the storms in the mediterranean this guy is dr graham hutt he literally wrote the book for modern boat pilots to navigate these waters okay this and he's studied the storms there for decades and he said, okay, here's what we know. Here are the clues we have in the text. Where do you think they, that Paul would have crash landed? And so he said, well, actually, I think it's probably down here on this little bay on the bottom right-hand corner of the island. And this bay is called St. Thomas Bay. He goes, it just kind of makes the most sense for how the winds work and how the storm works and what they were trying to avoid and where they're trying to go. And they wouldn't recognize it. And so he goes, and so Bob Cornuke goes, well, I wonder if we would, could find four ancient Roman anchors in the waters around there. And they go diving and they don't see any anchors. And he thinks, I wonder if we got the wrong spot, but he doesn't give up and he keeps going back. And eventually he meets a guy called Ray Chancho and Ray Chancho tells him that he and some friends uh, back in the sixties started diving in this area and they found four Roman anchors. And he said, will you please take me to the place where you found them? And so this, by the way, I know some of you will call me a nerd for this, but I will take that, that's fine. This is the, I just went and I looked for fishing maps of the water depths of St. Thomas Bay, and this is it. You can see over here, well, I guess you can if you've got the screen, but on the bottom right-hand corner, it's about 
140 feet deep to 100 feet deep, okay? And then uh, beyond that, uh, you can see if they wake up right there and they see the beach over here, uh, you can see in the bay where the beach is, and they start heading for that, they don't know 100 feet out or so from this pier, it's only 3.9 feet deep. Can you imagine they head in and they crash right there and then they go in and it's like, that is so cool. And to this day, here are the four anchors. Like just history. How crazy is that? That you can look at a text that's 2000 years old, looking for clues and, 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 and using modern science and say, hey, I wonder if we look in this area, would there be four anchors? And sure enough, four Roman anchors. I love that. I just think, and part of the reason I wanted to, I wanted to pause and talk about that today is because I feel like there's so many times in the Bible where I hear people make critiques of it, like miracles don't actually happen or, you know, whatever. And the reality is there are two massive miracles that happen in this text today. Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake and shakes it off in the fire and is fine, totally unaffected. And then he goes to this guy, the chief of the island's house, and then he hears about his father who's sick and goes and heals him. And you'll hear modern critical scholars say, well, sure, but we know miracles don't happen. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to juxtapose this incredible archaeological evidence and find that supports this story right next to these fantastical miracles that happen and say, this is a reliable book. We can trust it. We can look to it. We can believe what it says because it's true. And so before we go into the word today, I just wanted to pause and share that story with you. It just blows my mind that we can take evidence from the Bible and make archaeological finds based off of clues in the text. Such a reliable source. So on to the text for today. They land on Malta. And then when it says the native people came out, so about 700 years prior to this, the Greeks had settled on Malta and it still retained a lot of a Greek vibe to it. But then Malta's history is that it's been taken over by everybody over and over again. So it's kind of a smorgasbord. Uh, but the, the locals there, they see them, they make a fire for them. Um, and so uh, it's just this beautiful scene. And Paul's in there, he's helping out. He's gathering bundles of sticks and throwing them on the fire. And uh, this viper comes out and grabs his hand. Now, in Greek mythology, there are all these stories about how if someone were to escape justice uh, by the sea, they would, they would then receive justice on land. And so they would escape a shipwreck like Paul, come on land and be bitten by a snake or some other tragedy would befall them, right? And so they see this happen and they go, oh, this guy's a prisoner. He must be a murderer. The sea tried to kill him. Justice tried to kill him. But now he's getting justice. And then he doesn't get killed by the snake. Instead, he's fine. And they, they transition really quickly from thinking, oh, this guy's a murderer to, oh, wonder if this guy's a god. And remember, this is not the first time they thought Paul is a god because of these signs, right? And obviously he's not. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of the Holy Spirit in the world today, just like you and I. And then beyond that, he goes and he starts healing all these people, all these sick people on the island. And I don't know about you guys, I'm getting tons of flashbacks to other parts of the Bible. I mean, like, let uh, I'm going to, uh, yeah, here, I'll just read Mark 16, 15 through 18. This is the Mark, Mark's version of the Great Commission. 
says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So we see Jesus with the Great Commission at the end of Mark describing this scene perfectly. There's a snake. Paul doesn't get hurt. Then Paul starts healing everybody. It's crazy. And by the way, this isn't the only tie-in to the early Gospels that we see in this story. We see <laughs> this story of Paul going into Pluvius' house and then healing a family member and then bunches of people coming and, and, and receiving healing too. This is almost exactly picture perfect what happens at the beginning of Luke. This is Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. I mean, how, like, we're, we're at Rome. We're right next to Rome. We're three months away from arriving in Rome, and we're seeing Paul doing the same things that Jesus did all the way back at the beginning of his ministry, and that Jesus predicted and foretold and called us to at the end of his ministry. And we see Paul at the end of his ministry doing the same things. Now, why is this happening? This is, this is here to tell us the work of Jesus is not done in this world. Jesus is still at work today. We carry on the mission of Jesus today. We're in the last chapter of Acts, and I can't teach the, on the last chapter of Acts without going back to the first chapter of Acts. I'm just going to read. This is at the ascension of Jesus. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? And I love Jesus' response. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I love that. They're saying, okay, is now the time? Is today judgment day? Are you coming to bring your kingdom? Is now the end of the world? Is it the end of all days? And he says, you don't have to worry about that. You've got a job to do. You get to go into all the world and be my witnesses. And you're going to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as you go into all the world. And then we see Paul and we see Peter and we see everyone throughout the rest of the book of the Acts doing exactly that, going into all the world. I mean, Rome is like 3,000 miles away from Jerusalem. It's crazy. We're 9,000 miles away from Jerusalem. We're... <laughs> This, we made it. We're at the ends of the earth. Congratulations. We've arrived. And now we continue the mission that Jesus inaugurated, that Jesus started 
that Paul and Peter and the early church continued. And this is our story today. We are a part of this mission. Now, I, I do want to take a brief pause and go back to our text. And I want to talk about these miracles. Because I feel like sometimes when we read about miracles in the Bible, and we look at our own life, and we think, man, they're not as I'm not getting the level of miracles that they got in the Bible. I'm not like, seems like they got way more than I'm getting. And the reality is, in the book of Acts, we've seen dozens of miracles. Dozens. It's all over the place. But we're also reading a 30-year highlight reel of miracles, right? I think sometimes we're like, ah, oh, I haven't had a miracle. It's Tuesday. I haven't had a miracle since last Tuesday. Where's my miracle? You know, and that's just not how it works. These, these miracles, these miraculous events are spread out, and they always have a purpose of bringing people to belief. Always, always, always. And sometimes I was having a conversation, Jill and I were talking this week about how come you don't always get a miracle? How come sometimes you get a miracle, but other times you don't, you know? Um, and yeah, like uh, our story is a great example of that. We prayed our eyes out for our twin boys to live. I mean, I can't tell you the level and depth of prayer we had for our boys. I can't communicate the, the soul crying out for our boys to live. And they both passed. And you go, where is our miracle? Right? I wonder if Paul had a similar thought. He's, he's in prison for two years in Caesarea. Jesus comes to him and says, just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, you also have to go testify in Rome. He goes, got it. And then he sits in prison for two years. Anyone remember when Paul and Silas were thrown in prison and they started worshiping and they got an earthquake and got sprung from jail? I mean, how cool is that? That's like, <laughs> that's like the Holy Spirit at the Wild West bringing you from the OK Corral. Like, let's go, you know? And he goes, where's my miracle now? Here, I'm just sitting in prison. Where's my earthquake? How can we get miracles sometimes? We don't get miracles all the time. I was meeting um, with Ron and Joni this week and... Uh, their granddaughter uh, was born very premature and they were, and I, I've known Ron and Joni for years and we're close friends and they know our story and uh, we've just been praying so much for their little granddaughter. Uh, and uh, she was born, I think four months ago, I can't remember if I'm getting that detail right, four months ago, uh, 29 weeks. And, you know, with a bunch of issues and all this different kind of stuff, one of them being a hole in her heart, which is devastating. And so they went in and everyone's praying for baby Natalie and they go in and they open her up and they're about to go in to fix it. And the heart starts spasming, starts shaking. And it goes on for a minute and then it stops and the hole in her heart is gone. How nuts is that? Right? Like, thank you, Lord, for how you work in our midst. That's, a, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing about this miracle that happened I don't know how long ago, but I'm hearing about it this week. And that encourages my faith. And we can tell that story. And the thing is, we can say, Ron and Jody Friedman, their granddaughter, Natalie, Ron's on your screen right now. He can tell you this story and testify to God moving in their life. This is real. This happens. And we don't always get miracles. That's one of the critiques that I always hear is, well, why don't you just go why don't you just get miracles all the time? God said this. Why don't you get miracles all the time? It's just never how it's worked. I think miracles are special expressions of grace to bring people to faith in the work of God. And 
you and I have the same Holy Spirit, if we love and know Jesus, living inside of us that Paul did. We don't have a secondary Holy Spirit or an American Holy Spirit or the 21st century version of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, and he's given us a job to do. And we get to go do it. We get to go be witnesses all over the world. And the reality is, there's only one of you where you are at. Be the church where you are. Be who you are where you are. We need people full of the empowerment of the Spirit, carrying the good news of Jesus everywhere. We need Uber drivers that are full of the power of the Spirit of Jesus. We need executives. We need technology workers. We need teachers. We need stay-at-home moms and dads. We need landscapers. We need everybody to join in and be the, <laughs> be the light and salt of the earth like we were told we are. You know, there are these two passages. Um, I, I, might, I might touch on this a little bit another time, but there's two passages that mirror each other really well. One in, um, in Matthew 5, I think it's 13 through 17. It's salt. Jesus talking about salt and light. It says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And then Ephesians 2, 8. You are the workmanship of God created for good works. You were created for good works and let your good works shine before others. They may see your, see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. That's what you and I get to do. We get to go on this mission with Jesus. We get to go and say, hey, I have hope. I, I have a purpose beyond just living for the weekend or beyond my next big purchase. I live for something greater than myself. I'm a part of a global mission to see reconciliation and love and hope take over the world. That's what I get to be a part of. And that's what you get to be a part of. And that's what we get to do here together as a family, as a church, is look at our lives and say, where is there rotting in darkness? Where can I be salt and light? Where can I bring the hope of Jesus Christ in the world around me? And every single one of you in your job, in your neighborhood, you are light. You are life. You have hope in a dark and a broken world. So where do we go from here? Um, I think we go to Rome. I think we go to Rome. I want to pick up verse 11. Actually, hold on. I want to pick up on verse 10. They honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put us on board with everything we need. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island. This is verse 11. With the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petaly. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Each one of you has a calling that God's placed on your life that he keeps echoing back to you, a person, a place, something that he keeps bringing up. It's like a, it's like a chorus in a song that keeps showing up. And God's got that for you. 
He's got a Rome for you. He spent three years talking to Paul about Rome. And he's using Paul all on the way as he's going to Rome. But he gets to Rome. And what I would, my heart for us as a family is that we would all be able to identify what God is speaking to us about what our Rome is. Who is that person? What is that place that God is continually calling us to and is faithful to bring us to? To share the gospel, to be light and life, and to be light and life all along the way. So if there's homework this week, it's to think about where in God's mission are you particularly called to go? Where is that for you? And to think about it, pray about it, listen, and then make the bold and brave step of going and being salt and light in those places. Let's pray.